This edition of The Wellness Prescription is brought to you by Healthy Planet, your source to healthy living. Welcome to The Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for joining me today. When it comes to children, it seems that they catch and spread every virus. As soon as kids start school or daycare, they spend more time with runny noses, coughs, and ear infections than not. We all know this is a normal part of developing a healthy immune system. Today, Dr. Natasha Kulia, otherwise known as Dr. Tash, pediatrician at SickKids, is going to discuss a few of the common infections that kids get and how to handle them. Thank you and welcome to the show today, Dr. Tash. Thank you, Claudia. I'm happy to be back and I'm excited to have this really important conversation with you today. It actually is really important because I feel like all the parents are complaining again about the same things. You know, everybody, every child has a runny nose, daycare is calling, can't send them to school. But then it's also the anxiety that comes with having a child that could be potentially unwell or not well. So why is it that as soon as kids start school or get to daycare, they come home with a runny nose or an ear infection? I think this is a great question. I also think we need to look at it as pre-pandemic and during pandemic. I think where we're getting right now is to exactly where we were pre the pandemic. And the reason why I say that is during the pandemic, we were pretty much spending a lot more time away from each other. We were doing a lot of precautions, so a lot of more hand washing, face masking, and why this is important is because in general, in medicine, we say that this is what we should be doing all the time, but we don't do it all the time very successfully. And now what we're doing is we're bringing kids back after many, what, two years of not being exposed to all the common viruses throughout the year at very specific times that we know most of them come out. And now we're putting them back in school. And guess what happens? You got a bunch of little kids running around in a very closed uh, space for extended period of time. And we know the most common viruses are passed along via the respiratory tract or contact. And now we've got these little kids touching themselves, touching things. And I love the teachers, but they have a really hard job, especially the really young, young kids. And having to follow up behind them when they have a snotty nose and cleaning their face and cleaning their hands and cleaning everything they touch is not easy to do. And, you know, even then... In the home, it's not easy to do. So this is why when we talk about how viruses can quickly spread when you put a bunch of people together, I think when we think about how it is in daycares and schools or in dorms and college, we realize that this is true and has always held true. And now we're just seeing it more. And you're right. Parents are anxious about it. And this is the common thing I hear in the emergency department with. My kid's been sick now for the sixth time. And the first question I ask is, did they just start daycare? Or do they have a sibling? in daycare and they're not in daycare because remembering that a sibling in daycare is equally going to you know spread and potentially expose everyone in the household so everyone's pretty much the same level of exposure and and risk of developing viral illnesses and so when you have a child that's new to like to daycare probably you know they're about two they're toddlers two to three years old and they're getting constant, like repetitive. Is that just the immune system trying to get stronger and trying to be able to fight stuff? Because I think that's the big concern. I remember being a mom with little kids. I mean, it was one after the other, back and forth. And you're thinking there's something wrong with your child when in fact, it's just them trying to develop their immunity. I think, Claudia, what you highlight here is two parts. Uh, One, that we need to start looking at this not necessarily in a negative light. You know, there is something to be said about natural science in the body and in our immune responses. And also the other part of the addressing the anxiety and fears. I also think with two years of parents not being able to really have clear 
uh, education and clear guidance um, because maybe they don't have access to a pediatrician or a family doctor, Googling, it, it sends you down this rabbit hole. So first it's saying, you know, rest, we recognize that parents are afraid and addressing that part. And two, it's about understanding and explaining what our immune system is about. And so what we need to understand and explain to parents is your child is too, they have, you know, their natural immunity that they are slowly starting to develop. And what happens is when we get sick, we know that our bodies develop what we call immunoglobulins that in the future have memory to that specific infection that will allow our bodies next time to recognize that infection quicker and in hopes that it will reduce symptomology. So meaning the next, let's say I get the flu this year, next year if I'm approached by, my body is approached by the same flu or even maybe a lesser strain, um, my body will go, oh, wait, I think I recognize this. I have cells that remember what this was like. And that child or yourself may be able to have your body respond in a way that you may have very minimal or no symptoms at all. What I do have to say is that we do understand the fear when these symptoms become prolonged or there's concerning other symptoms, the importance of having that family support with a pediatrician or a family doctor where there is follow-up and there is education around what is truly concerning is very, very, very key. It's about understanding the role of the immune system and how it develops year after year. That's really important to note because we don't realize that every year we get exposed to very similar viruses. They sometimes change, mutate, as we've learned through the pandemic. So maybe your reaction is not going to be as strong, but you're still going to be exposed and you're still, you might get the same symptoms. And that's a really important point. I remember understanding this later on because when my kids started school, I never got sick until they started like daycare and school. And then I started catching everything because I probably was being exposed to things that my body wasn't recognizing. Is that how it works? The reality is, as you as an adult, you've probably exposed yourself to so many things throughout the years that you've built immunity that you don't realize. So what I find a lot of parents will say to me is, but I'm not sick and now my child's sick, but I didn't expose them to other children. And I'm like, but the reason being is you potentially have a virus that we know has an incubation period, can already spread for a few days before you have symptoms, but because your immune system is strong or it recognized it, you don't actually have the symptoms, but it doesn't mean that you're not still somehow transmitting it. It's a very nice you know, compliment to what you just said when your children bring home something and now you're being exposed to it maybe for the first time ever and never before or it's been a really long time and your body doesn't really remember until it kickstarts. And usually that symptomology and time period is actually shorter than what your child might go through. And that's because your body goes, oh yeah. And so I think there's something to be said about understanding that portion and that piece of human physiology and immunology. I think what's important is for us to kind of go through what are some of the common infections, and then it helps parents understand how long potentially your child could be ill, you know, maybe ill, because we all think that, you know, we've had a fever for 24 hours, it should be gone with Tylenol or Advil, but sometimes fevers last a long time, depending, I suppose, on the type of infection that the child has. Yeah. So what are the common ones that you guys find uh, coming into the ER? So... I'll say this again, we all had this very beautiful map of like what time of year certain viruses kind of, you know, emerged and then we would predict. We would be like, okay, we're going to have this season coming up. So let's predict that. But then with the pandemic in two years of a lot of these viruses kind of sitting back, not really being, ex you know, exposed 
to children and other adults and then being put in a daycare or in a, you know, a, you know, large family gatherings, they kind of take a steep step back. But after two years, they went, no, no, enough's enough. We still exist. We're still in the, in the scheme of things and we still want to be out there like everyone else. So for us, it's actually really nice because typically we, we, we do like the school year. So you start at the beginning of the school year, that's around fall time. And you see a lot of the runny nose, congestion, eye drainage, coughing. And some of the things we see around that, um, you know, fall into summer, fall into winter is the bug, the stomach bug called gastroenteritis. Then we have hand, foot, mouth, which maybe a lot of parents who are listening right now just experience that with their children. And then RSV. And then winter hits. And we already know winter we call virus season. There's so many weird named viruses that we have, but the common one we see are RSV, which is respiratory syncytial virus, and then influenza, which is, you know, common every single year winter time, and then croup, which is caused by parainfluenza. And then we move into spring, into summer again, before we hit the whole full cycle, where we see things like rhinovirus, so if your child's typically really just drainy, that's all they're doing, and enterovirus which is back to that, you know, stomach bug that lots of vomiting and diarrhea. So that is what we typically saw. Now COVID is in the mix because it's one of those all year round and can happen. And then you have all the little smaller ones, but those are the most common, common ones that we see and when they usually emerge. And you mentioned hand, foot, mouth disease, and that is a big one recently. Um, I have a lot of my own uh, patients who have, you know, canceled appointments or have come in and complained that their poor child had hand, foot, mouth. A lot of people don't even know what that is. Most parents, young parents who had kids during the pandemic have no clue and they're completely freaked out about this hand, foot, mouth because it just sounds bizarre. So what is hand, foot, mouth disease? How do they get it? How long do symptoms last? <laughs> I, I, I really just did um, a two-part post uh, on my social media because I knew it was happening. We were seeing it a lot and I realized there was a lot of confusion because of the name. Because it does say hand, foot, mouth in, in respect to trying to say where most of the symptoms are, but it's not just that. So it is a virus. Uh, it's, got, it's called the Coxsackie virus, also known as enterovirus. And it's very, very common in toddlers, school-age children. Um, what typically, typically happens is there's outbreaks in daycare centers, schools, camps. Viruses can live on shared toys, uh, sometimes even in swimming pools. And what happens is children often will get fever and flu-like symptoms, maybe flu-like symptoms, but not as intense. Because when if you've ever had the flu, it's, it makes you feel really crummy for about three to five days after they catch the virus. So imagine you don't even know for th those three to five days that you are harboring this virus and potentially spreading it. And most children will have symptoms for seven to 10 days. The idea of the hand foot mouth is because you can develop hand lesion and foot lesions. They could be a little raised. They can look like vesicles. They'll have a red base. They're not typically itchy, but they're painful. So your child may be like rubbing their hands, rubbing their feet, saying it hurts. And then they develop oral lesions that can be so painful that they refuse to eat or drink. They have excessive drooling. Um, and the biggest concern of that is the dehydration components. If your child refuses to eat or drink because of the pain, it is extremely and highly contagious. It's one, it is it, like we see it the minute one kid has it, multiple kids have it. And it usually peaks, like I said, in the summer uh, and fall. And this is also contagious in adults. So previously, we would say it's very child specific and it's still very child specific. But if you've never had it, never exposed to it before and your kid comes home, you as a parent could 100% get this. 
And the additional other places, which is why hand, foot, mouth is a misnomer, is that you can see it in the genital area, the diaper area, the lower legs, so ankles up to knees, and also on the arms. So the rash can go in more extreme cases other places. But that's why it's named the way it is. All right. Well, when we come back, more on bronchitis, RSV, what are they and what are their symptoms? This is the Wellness Prescription on 105.9 The Region. Stay with us. Connect with us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region or call 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. This is 105.9 The Region. The Wellness Prescription with Dr. Claudia on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to The Wellness Prescription. Before the break, Dr. Tash and I were discussing um, hand, foot, and mouth disease, what the symptoms are, how easily it's spread, and why it's called hand, foot, mouth disease. But there are other viruses that kids and children, young kids, preschoolers, uh, daycare kids can contract and spread. So... We've covered hand, foot, mouth disease. Why? Um, what is the next big one? Is it RSV? What does that stand for? I can't ever say it. So I'll leave that to you. RSV is just a fancy name for respiratory, respiratory, airway, syncytial virus. So just RSV is totally fine. We can totally use that. And it's a very common respiratory virus. It usually causes mild cold-like symptoms. And most people recover in about a week or two. But the thing we need to realize is that RSV can be very serious, especially for infants, young infants, and older adults, okay? So RSV is most common cause of bronchiolitis. So there's a lot of misunderstanding, misperception about kids and bronchitis, which is typically what we use to determine and to use as a definition for chronic airway inflammation, which is more adult, more older kids. So bronchiolitis with the extra IOL leads to inflammation and congestion of the smaller airways. And it's also RSV is also the most common cause of pneumonia in children younger than one year of age. And we already know that's a more vulnerable population because their immune systems are still trying to build. And so people with RSV are usually infected for three to eight days and children are often exposed to and infected with RSV, places where it's enclosed, multiple people, easy spread. And if we're not learning to do the same kind of precautions we've been doing, we're going to start seeing a lot more. And this is pretty much, you know, airway, uh, coughing, congestion, exposure to that, inhaling that. And it actually can survive on hard surfaces. So that's a big other reason why we talk about really good hand washing and surface washing and we don't want to expose these young poor babies these are typically occurring fall winter and spring so this is a larger time of year when this happens it's the coughing the sneezing the viral droplets very interesting because a lot of kids get it and they you know you don't even know you have it and then all of a sudden it's like you come home and all of a sudden your child is coughing is it that quick because your child is coughing and sneezing and the nose is running and they feel generally malaised. I can't think of a better word. Is that how that the symptoms present? Yeah, I, I love that you asked that so that we can make parents more aware of kind of what to expect. And I want to say that that RSV picture that we say RSV bronchiolitis, we usually will say a year and under is more common. And we may expand that age to about a year and a half, max two years, because at that point, the other more common viruses that they're actually being exposed to and likely symptom symptomatic from 
are the other ones that we, you know, that we've set. There's a whole, whole large one. So yes, it can be quick onset. And usually we see this pattern where, especially in babies, the sneezing, the congestion, the increased work of breathing, but it's very transient. So it builds, peaks, and then, you know, starts to improve. And then it usually improves over the 10 to sometimes seven days, sometimes 10, and sometimes two weeks, depending on how well you manage all those other symptoms. But if your baby is really young and your baby might have other chronic illnesses already, some require more support. The true treatment of bronchiolitis is supportive. So you do conge- like decongestion with suctioning. You provide Tylenol, Advil, Tylenol under the age of six months. To Advil, you can start adding after six months. Hydration is super key because the harder you breathe, the more um, fluid you lose. And you want to make sure to do all of that. But some kids may not be able to do all those things. They get dehydrated. They might need a little supportive care with oxygen or even more than that with like some extra supportive airway. That can happen and we need parents to understand that. So anyone under the age of one, if you're concerned for that breathing issue and we're in RSV season, no one's going to fault you for coming in to be seen because that's actually a very important thing for us to assess. That's a really, really, really important point because we have, you know, the different groups. We have the parents who run to the emergency room for everything, understandably so. And then there are some parents who just wait it out, wait it out. And sometimes it gets to the point where that's when they need all that extra attention. I remember being anxious myself and never really knowing. Um, and, you know, for all the moms and dads out there or, you know, whoever's parenting, don't be afraid to, you know, go to the ER when you're feeling uncertain right? You know, there's, there's the, the borderline of like, my patient, my child looks okay. I'm uncertain. We also have now like, you know, the virtual care clinic that we have through kids where there's a symptom, symptom checker. And it tells you if you, you know, qualify for that virtual care quick, vi- well, not quick, but like that visit. But again, uncertainty, discomfort, um, anything, we're not going to fault you for that. Like we want to make sure that you, you are safe, but your child is safe. That's the key, right? I just want to reiterate to parents, in terms of all the viruses and bacteria that kids can bring home, is it okay to administer Tylenol for the fever, sometimes for the pain, especially with hand, foot, mouth? I mean, they're in a lot of pain and they're so uncomfortable. Is it okay to give them Tylenol, some Advil? And how do we know that we're not overdosing? So your child's over, well, overall well-being and comfort is of utmost importance. And we know that with fever, hand, foot, mouth, just like muscle aches and cramps from dehydration, this is something that your child's uncomfortable with. And we strongly encourage taking the time to see if they need that Tylenol or Advil, remembering Advil not before the age of six months. With that being said, we know the help. We also know that this isn't going to be something that's going to go on for three months straight um, or long extended periods of time. So even for seven to 10 days, as long as you're still hydrating them and feeding them so they're not irritating their stomach lining, this is called short-term medication use. If you're finding you're using one of these medications for more than like 10 to 12, 14 days at a time, then that's something you should be definitely 100% talking to your family doctor or pediatrician about because maybe there's something else going on. Or there's an area or gap of knowledge that could be discussed further in terms of that medication use or what's actually going on with your child. But in short spurts of medication use, there is no such thing as like 
overdosing as long as you're following the guidelines. I think it's a big concern that parents just don't always know the right answer to. So we appreciate that. In terms of conjunctivitis, is that the same as pink eye? Um, let's talk about what that is and um, why it happens. <laughs> I think there's a lot of learning that's happened over the years. And as we get more information in science and we know what the common causes are, this changes. So conjunctivitis is general term for saying that there's inflammation or irritation to the covering of the eyeball and the inside of the eyelid. And this can make your eye look like that reddish pinkish color, which has now in time developed the term pink eye. And then everyone immediately thinks this is a contagious process. It needs treatment immediately keep everyone away. And in some ways, there's truth. Not everything that's conjunctivitis is bacterial. Most commonly, conjunctivitis is actually caused by a virus. If we've just talked all about all the different viruses all year round, if your child develops an eye that's pink and, and irritated, should we be surprised about that? Logically speaking, no, because now we know that the most common cause of conjunctivitis is actually a viral cause. And we know our children going back into school, are going to be exposed to one virus after another. They're going to have scratchy feeling to their eyes. They're going to have maybe lots of tearing, slightly swollen. Pus or discharge from the eyes can make the eyes sticky during sleep, and that could also be a discomfort to them. So there's different ways. You either have direct contact with someone um, that has a bacterial infection. There's the indirect one, which is all the viruses. So remember how I said not all direct eye-to-eye -eye contact is contagious, but if it's a cause of a, it's from a virus, well, the virus itself is contagious. So the person could be spreading the virus that could lead to the conjunctivitis. And then there's also droplets. So you can have like droplets from people sneezing or coughing in your eyes. And the majority of time, even now, is purely supportive and symptomatic. And the discussion around antibiotics needs to, it requires them to physically see the eye themselves. So it's the history the physical exam, and you'll see that 90% of the time we say watch and wait because within five to seven days, those eyes clear up on their own and they don't necessarily need antibiotics. Now, excessive purulence, swelling starting to develop around the eye where like the eyelid is shut, uh, pain, not itching or irritation, but like pain with eye movement, those make us think of a little bit worsening concerns of bacterial causes. And that's where, again, you should physically be seen by someone before you start any form of antibiotics or drops. As soon as somebody in the class had pink eye, everybody got sent home and or you, for sure the infected child was like, you got to stay away from that person for the next week or so. Another big one that I think kind of made a comeback is mono. I know there's a bigger term, there's a bigger word for it, but we all call it mono. And it's also known as the kissing disease or something like that. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure why it's made a comeback. Maybe we can talk a little bit about that. And why have they nicknamed it the kissing disease? I don't think it ever left us. I just think there was less prevalence when we learn about kind of how it works. And sometimes you don't even have symptoms and you don't realize it. So that's the first part. So mono or mononucleosis is a viral infection, and it can be caused by lots of different viruses. But the most common virus that we all hear about is called Epstein-Barr virus or EBV, most commonly amongst teenagers and young adults, especially college students. 
And generally speaking, per like the CDC, EBV is one of the generally one of the most common human viruses in the world. And an interesting fact about that is that most people actually get infected with EBV in their lifetime and not even have any symptoms. So that may contribute to the reason why we may not have seen it for a while, but it didn't mean it wasn't actually there. The most common cause and the way it is spread is saliva. So if you think about it, children around children, even though more common in teenagers and adults, there are some children that can get it. It's through coughing, handling or chewing toys that are contaminated with the virus. And then here we go, the kissing disease. Because in teens, you think about sharing forks, knives, cutlery, like especially when you live with roommates, plates, cups, toothbrushes. Let's be honest. We know that there's some couples out there and young teens that are like, oh, I'll just borrow the toothbrush today and use it. And then relationships start blooming and you start experimenting with kissing and you have a partner and that's essentially it. The other interesting fact is the incubation time for mono is actually 30 to 50 days. So imagine an incubation period where you're harboring this virus for a very long time, maybe not having active symptoms and then developing active symptoms. You could have been passing that along um, to people even bef way before. So it's it's a very interesting virus. It's so common, but we I don't think we realize how common it is. Thank you so much, Dr. Tash. It's always a pleasure. It's always so informative, yet so fun to chat with you. You make raising our kids that much easier and that much less stressful. So we so appreciate everything you do at the ER at Sick Kids. If people want to learn more about the amazing work that you post and that you do, how can they do that? I will tell you, um, first of all, thank you, Claudia, for having me. Uh, talking to parents and educating parents has been a, a big, it sounds corny, but it is a passion of mine. And because there's a need for it. And if you have a trustful resource, and if that's me, uh, I'm honored. And I, I, I'm honored to have the opportunity to be able to serve parents in that way. And so with that being said, if you want more information, I typically do most of my stuff on Instagram. So you can find me at Dr. Tash Official or Dr.Tash.Official on Instagram. And I will usually post something there and it will go on my Facebook. Uh, there's a lot of uh, stuff in the works about maybe expanding this, but right now, given the status of the emergency department and my clinical duties, it's taken up a lot of time, but that's where parents can go. I find it easier, easier, digestible information with high um, acuity content. So in the sense, what do I really need to know? And I will always add the, when should I go to the ER and what can I do at home as a parent and feel empowered to take care of my child on the off chance they don't have another resource in the moment. So hopefully parents find that helpful and continue to find that helpful. And I can vouch for it. I've gone onto your Instagram all the time and it is such an amazing resource. So thank you. You can always find me on Instagram at Claudia underscore Machiella or my website, ClaudiaMachiella.com. That's my show for this week. If you missed it, go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and of course, Audible. I'm Dr. Claudia. Thank you for listening. I hope this helps you live your best life. The Wellness Prescription was brought to you by Healthy Planet. Order online at HealthyPlanetCanada.com or go online to find a location nearest you. 